1993, Wu-Tang Clan released a song called Cream. C-R-E-A-M. Cream. The cream is an acronym for the words cash rules everything around me. And the hook of this song says, cash rules everything around me. Cream, get the money. Dollar, dollar bills, y'all. And with these lyrics, Wu-Tang was making a powerful claim. They were essentially saying that those who have money have the power. And that song embodies the secularized view of money and power. Now, in our text today, James turns his attention to our bank accounts, our wallets, and our pocketbooks as he warns both Christian and non-Christian alike of the dangers of thirsting for money and power. It is with a firm tone, which we should all be familiar with by now, that James candidly peels back the layers of our hearts to expose what sin can do to the human heart. Today, we, with this text, are confronted with the great truth from Matthew 6, 21, that says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. My brothers and sisters, all people are capable of making the pursuit of Selfish desires, the primary lens through which we view all of life. But life for the believer is not about the accumulation of wealth and power. Rather, the Christian life is about pursuing the things that are central to the heart of God. There are two central warnings in our passage today. Both warnings have to do with money and power. The first warning we find in chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, is to Christians who pursue wealth and power without considering the heart of God. The second warning that we find in chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, the warning is that There is judgment awaiting. It is guaranteed to the enemies of God who do injustice to the poor. Now, brothers and sisters, we we all have aspirations. Myself, I, I desire and I have aspirations to plant a church someday. You may aspire to be an entrepreneur or gain financial independence through means other than a regular nine-to-five job. It is a good thing to have aspirations. Aspirations motivate people to be better. And I'm reminded of that oft-helpful proverb that says, failing to plan is planning to fail. But our aspirations and our plans become an issue When our selfish desires and sinful ambitions are our motivation. 
This text shows us a hypothetical individual who makes plans to go into a town and live there in order to trade and make a profit. The person in our text is an ambitious person who has a plan and who has it all figured out. The text gives us the sense that this person is zealous and confident, perhaps overconfident in his own abilities. He or she knows that what they have, what they have to offer is something of value. They are so gifted in what they are able to do. They are so confident in their abilities that they believe that success is guaranteed. Now, there is nothing inherently wrong with having confidence in our abilities. There is nothing inherently wrong with wanting to make a profit and As we have already mentioned, there is nothing inherently wrong with planning for success. So this raises the question, what is wrong with what is happening here in this text? If it is right and good and true that we should have a plan, what's the problem? The problem is that there is a fundamental flaw with the human condition. We are finite creatures. We are flawed by our mortality. Our lives can be dramatically altered in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. All of our hopes and dreams can be crushed and taken away from us in a single second because human life is fragile. It is temporal. It is fleeting. All the plans had likely been made. All the groomsmen had likely gotten their tuxes. All the bridesmaids had likely gotten their dresses fitted. The preacher had probably secured the marriage license that would be signed. And all of the decorations had probably probably been set up for the wedding that was going to take place on November 26th. 2006. But hours before the wedding bells were scheduled to ring, 50 gunshots rung out instead. And on that day, Sean Bell, who was supposed to be joined in the covenant of marriage to his fiancee and the mother of his child, his life was tragically taken. Sean had not committed a crime. He was not the suspect of a crime, but his life was tragically cut short hours before a wedding that had likely taken months to plan. My brothers and sisters, our lives are a vapor, a mist that fades quickly. We can be here today and gone tomorrow. And and just like in the case of Sean Bell, we can be here today and gone today for many of us. We will be forgotten after a generation or two, and no one will remember our names or remember that we even existed. My brothers and sisters, this is the fundamental and inescapable flaw of the human condition. How dare we 
so much as even imagine that we are capable of anything without God. And so since our mortality is the fundamental flaw in the human condition, how then should we live? We should instead submit all our plans, all our actions, all of our desires to the will and the desire of a holy and triune God. First Corinthians chapter 12, verse 31 tells us, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. My brothers and sisters, is that your disposition on today? The Westminster Shorter Catechism says, what is the chief end of man? And it answers, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. My brothers and sisters, are you glorifying God with your plans and with your actions and with your desires on today? Have you submitted your plans and your desires to the lordship of Jesus Christ or do you live selfishly by the power of your own means? You see, because your pursuit of power does not have to be money exclusively. And it may not even be the pursuit of money primarily. You could be pursuing domination over your spouse. You could be pursuing domination over the people at your workplace. You could be... You could not be holding politicians accountable who support policies that protect the financial status of the rich while further oppressing the poor and the marginalized. But my brothers and sisters, the Christian life is a life that is submitted to the will of God. So I encourage you, my brothers and sisters today, seek to discern the will of God. Seek to desire his will through reading scripture, through prayer, through fasting, through wise counsel from godly men and women. Because our text today shows us that pursuing power selfishly and moving without God is not only wrong, it is evil. And now that you know this, and maybe you already knew this. But now that you know this, you are without excuse. Our text shows us that whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. My brothers and sisters, if this could be said of you, I beg you, I plead with you to repent. And believe the gospel for this area of your life. Now, James changes his tone in the beginning of chapter 5. In verse 1. He goes from calling those who are Christian to humility under the lordship of Christ. To pronouncing judgment on the rich who oppress the poor. He goes from speaking as a priest to his people to a prophet who prophesies impending judgment on the enemies of God. 
weeping and howling should be the disposition of the rich in this text because they are headed for for misery because God is going to judge them. Their judgment is sure. Their judgment is imminent. It is inevitable. And so James, his tone raises the question, who are these rich people? And what's wrong with being rich? The rich in this passage are not being indicted simply because they are wealthy. They are being indicted because they have used their wealth and power to lord over and to oppress the poor. You see, in James and also in other parts of Scripture, the poor and the oppressed are equivalent to God's righteous people. There is a unique sense in which God specially aligns himself with the poor and oppressed in Scripture, even so much that Jesus in the incarnation, this is Jesus, the God-man, truly God, truly man, submitted himself to the will of the Father by becoming a poor and oppressed person. So we can see that the rich people James is talking about here are not Christian because they are the enemies of God who have, who have oppressed God's righteous and beloved children. These are those who know to do the right thing, but they do not do the right that they know to do. And not only do they not do the right thing, but they rebel against the will of God. In verse number four of chapter five, James invokes the name of the Lord, the Lord's name as the one who fights on the behalf of his beloved children. He calls God the Lord of hosts. Now, the Lord of hosts translates a Hebrew name for God, which can be translated Yahweh of armies. So James is prophetically invoking the sovereign God who commands the armies of both the heavens and the earth, and the cries of the oppressed have reached Yahweh of armies' ears, and he will use the entirety of his might to do battle against those who have oppressed his righteous ones. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, raise another question for us. Why is an address to non-believers present in a letter that was written to believers? There's a twofold purpose here. First, James, remember, just finished addressing believers who want to arrogantly amass wealth and power. Verse 5, in chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, serve as a demonstration that the rich are are definitely not in a position to be envied. These rich people in this text have found themselves as the enemies of God. These rich people have found themselves in the court of God's judgment with a mountain of evidence stacked against them. That's not a place that the children of God should envy. 
But the second purpose is to encourage the oppressed, righteous people of God that God has not forgotten about them. Their cries have reached the ears of Yahweh of armies, and he will serve justice on their behalf. And James, in a sense, sweetens the pie by comparing the rich to a fattened calf being prepared for slaughter. You see, the rich foolishly hold back the wages of those in their employ while filling their own stomachs. But what they are doing foolishly is preparing themselves for the inevitable judgment that is rightly coming to them. My brothers and sisters, my encouragement to all of us today as the people of God is that there is no oppression that God does not see. The hymn, Come Ye Disconsolate, says that earth has no sorrow that heaven cannot heal. So I want to remind us today and assure us today that God sees, he knows, and that he cares. There is no Christian martyrdom that God does not mourn. There is no sacrifice of resources or, re- or relationships for the cause of Christ that God does not honor. There is no police violence that goes unnoticed. There is no racism that does not grieve the heart of God. There are no injustices that will go unpunished. There are no inequities that will not receive full restitution and reparations. I know that seeing injustice breaks our hearts, but it breaks the heart of God all the more. And I understand even how intriguing it could be to jump off of the gospel ship when it seems that unbelievers are fighting for justice, but our own brothers and sisters in Christ seem to be apathetic. But let me encourage us today that Yahweh of armies fights for justice and he is on the side of those who humbly put his trust and hope in him. Let me remind and encourage you that we as the people of God do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. My brothers and sisters, we can take hope in the fact that the day of reckoning is coming, the day of the Lord is coming, and it is a day that the people of God can rejoice. That is a day that the people of God can celebrate about, but that is also a day that we can look forward to the justice of God raining down true, righteous, biblical, God-felt, God-honoring justice from the sovereign almighty god that day is coming that day is that day we can be sure that that day is coming it is inevitable it is a day that we can rejoice but it is a day that the enemies of god should fear and it may seem that in this moment when we are becoming all the more acquainted with that fundamental flaw of the human condition when our mortality is right in our faces in light of a pandemic, in light of 
the injustices that we see seems like on a daily basis. It may seem that the righteousness and grace and justice of the Lord are tarrying long, but the day of the Lord is coming. And the day of the Lord, my brothers and sisters, it will it will be so swift that it will seem as though all of the sin and all of the evil of this world lasted, but only for a moment. So what is your life? What is your life? Our text today shows us that you can have one of two dispositions. Either you humbly recognize Either you humbly recognize that your life belongs to God or you foolishly believe that your life belongs to you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you that we can rejoice in the truth of your scriptures. We thank you that even if we as your children must face being marginalized or oppressed, if that day comes, we know in America, we know that if that day comes, you have not forsaken us. So we come together in this moment in solidarity with the persecuted church because they know what it's like to be oppressed and to be marginalized for the sake of the truth of the gospel. Well, we come together now in solidarity with the poor and with the oppressed, with the widow and the orphan. Because they know what it's like to be marginalized and to be oppressed. Lord, that your church would understand how to come into solidarity with those who have been oppressed and that have been marginalized because your heart is for them. Your heart is for us when the church becomes a laughing stock of the world. But Jesus, they laughed at you on the cross. They mocked you on the cross. But you rose from the dead, declaring that you have the power of heaven and earth, all authority. And we put our hope and our trust in you. So Lord, help us to have the proper disposition as your children. Let us come before you humbly as we live our lives to your glory. It is in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that I do pray. Amen.